You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. We've got a lot coming on today's program. If you take a look at the commodity markets, my goodness, are the grains on a tear. Jacob Burks at agmarket.net will join us in just a minute with a breakdown. And then at segment two, we're going to talk with Jeff Johnston, communications economist at CoBank, $700 million rolled out by USDA on rural broadband. Jeff's going to fill us in on when it's going to start making a difference. And in segment three, we're going to talk with Tanner Beamer of NCBA about what recently came through the Ag Appropriations Committee and how it could impact the industry. And then in segment four, folks, today, this morning, we had the three-year RFS set rule finally released from the EPA. The Clean Fuel Alliance of America is not very thrilled with it. We'll be talking to Paul Winters at the end of the program about what they uh, feel the EPA missed in this most recent set of disclosures. Before we get into all of that, however, we have a grain rally to discuss. Jacob Burks, agmarket.net, joins us now. And Jacob, are we just in weather mode here with what's going on in corn, soybeans, and wheat? Uh, we are 100% in weather mode, and that is uh, that is the focus uh, every six hours when we release another uh, weather model run. So yes, definitely weather related. Jacob, I'm taking a look at the forecast right now. I'm looking at the radar maps right now. We've got, it looks like, a line of thunderstorms stretching across eastern Nebraska all the way down into Kansas, and we've got corn up 25 cents. Where are we in this weather market right now? Well, I, I, you know, I personally, it's, it's hard to look out your window and market grain, right? I've always told my customers that from abroad, and here I am sitting in the middle of you know, the donut hole of drought uh, right here in the southwest corner of Wisconsin. And, and so it's, it's really hard to, to, to focus on on the areas that are, you know, getting rain, there, there's, you know, there's the periphery of the Corn Belt has been, you know, relatively uh, solid with with moisture. Uh, but it's that it's that western Iowa, uh, northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin, uh, down into central Wisconsin that's really taken the brunt of this dryness. Uh, you know, and, and I think that that's got the markets, uh, you know, you know, watching weather forecasts. You know, there's no weather coming, there's no rain scheduled through that time frame. Uh, but yeah, the privia of it is getting, you're seeing North Dakota get uh, uh, several inches of rain here this week as well. So there's certain areas that are doing great. And this rally is really benefiting them for sure. Jacob, your producers, you mentioned you're in Southwest Wisconsin. You're looking at that dryness and drought accelerating across your, your country. How are you advising producers in that environment to market 625 corn, but only if you got some to sell, what are you doing? Well, we, we've definitely switched to all put option, but you know, using option strategies across there, uh, you know, and, and right now, uh, one thing that we didn't cover about this rally is, is looking at uh, some of these guys are just in margin situations where we have to uh, take we, we have to, to move some positions around just from a cash flow situation. And so that's what you're in. You know, earlier you sold some calls to help finance some of these put options. Uh, and that, that's something that you have to address, you know, the cash flow part of their, their operation. And, and so some of these positions, hey, we have to lift off. We have to move around. We have to maneuver and be nimble in this market. And that's what you know, the options give you. Uh, but there's some consequences to, to making things cheaper uh, when you sell the calls. There, there's there's margin calls to be had there. So uh, right now I'm advising you'll know, use long option only. Uh, let's look at uh, put setting some floors under this and let this thing uh, let this thing keep going. 
All right, let this thing keep going. And now, Jacob, when we take a look at the markets today, corn and soybeans, I understand the reason for the rally. Balance sheets are still tight. We need all of this new crop in order to make things happen. Looking at the wheat market, a little greater number of supplies, both domestically and globally, still seeing this rally take off. Does that give you more confidence that this could be longer lasting? Uh, I think the one thing that does kind of give you confidence about the wheat market is the fact that we're not the only people that are having problems right here in this one little part of the world. You know, there's some there's some drought stricken areas. Uh, you know, Australia's having a hard time getting some of their winter wheat in. Uh, you're seeing some of the uh, you know some of the areas across the EU, uh, the India, Australia, some of those guys. So the global producers of wheat uh, are not just in a uh, you know in a bread basket right now. There there's some there's some you know opportunities there. Uh, for our prices to continue to hold rallies just due to some global, global potential supply problems. But hey, supply supply rallies, uh, whether it's uh, corn, beans or wheat right now, they happen fast and they happen quick. Uh, but the, you know, on the wheat side of things, uh, you know, you look at the also having the fear of the uh, of the corridor of the, of the grain corridor not being renewed with Russia, Ukraine situation. You know, that could cause some some stimulation here as well. Jacob, there's a whole lot to watch as this rolls forward. The trend is definitely behind the, the grain farmers back here as these rallies continue. What are you going to be watching for clues that maybe it's time to, to really get aggressive? Or are you there right now? Well, I, I think being aggressive, you have to stay aggressive, but with some flexibility. The, the biggest decision we have right now, and when you look at defensive strategies, when I look at, okay, we, we put some call strategies on to help defend, is what do you do going through these weekends? The weekends you know, can be big movers when you have a rain event come across. And this weekend is very pivotal uh, just due to some of the forecast of rain in this area that is you know, supposed to hit. So I think you have to be very, uh, very careful with that. If you're, if you're in futures, you, know, you might have some stop protection. I like there, there's short term put options all over the place. Now, there's short term options every week of the uh, of the year uh, that expire based off new crop issues. I think that, you know, having that uh, protection in place, when you see a market moving 20 and 30 cents every day, uh, you have to be able to act. You have to be able to take advantage and give reward this market for what it's given you. And you make a great point, Jacob. It's it's being flexible, not just, of course, as a producer, but also as an end user. These 20, 30 cent rallies are certainly changing the economics for cattle feeders. Seeing the feeder cattle market move limit down, Jacob, is 625 corn the straw that uh, or, or the needle that pops this feeder cattle balloon? Well, that's it's definitely weighing on the feeder cattle. They've been pretty resilient to go down because we know the situation with, uh, with the supply side of the cattle. Uh, but, you know, whenever you have to, you know, buy this, what they're thinking right now in their mind as a feeder is seven, eight dollar corn. You know, what if that happens again? And, and what what that's what's that gonna do? So they're they're right now actively uh decreasing what they're willing to pay for these feeders and, and uh it's it's really hit hard, it's really hit quick and and you know feeder cattle have been at such an elevated level that there is a lot of room for them to fall before they get to a level that of, of comfort. Uh so I mean the, the fundamentals of that market hasn't changed. It's what's coming on the backside, what they're willing to pay just due to high feed costs right now. That makes sense. That margin pressure has to come back into the pricing somehow. Jacob, this has been a pretty incredible rally. Looking at taking options out here on new crop, are you looking out on 2024, 2025 at all marketing during this rally here? We have not went to 2025. Uh, previously, we had sold some some corn at, 2000, uh, at 540 area. I, this 550 level definitely has your attention. If it doesn't have your attention, go back and do your numbers. Put a 170 yield in for this year. Okay, you're still 15, 1415. Not a, not not burdensome, but not short. 
And, and if you know, we're still in the first, middle of June. If that rain comes this weekend, a lot of ifs here, okay. But if you put a, there's, you can make a pretty good argument for a two billion bushel carryout again. That does not tell us that we need to be above five fifty for next year's corn. So uh, there's actually some option strategies you can use there too, Mike. I mean, they've got short dated options that start in October for the following year. So there's some strategies there that you can make, and you can go back and look historically of, of you know the 2013s an analog year that's been you know uh, abused right now of what what could happen. Uh, but in, in you know in those years, we saw the 2014 fall pretty quick before harvest of 2013 as well. So be be, be nimble. Absolutely, when these reversals come, which they do in the commodities markets, they can come quickly, folks. We've been talking with Jacob Burks of AgMarket.net. Jacob, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. When we come back, we're going to dig into federal investment in rural broadband. Jeff Johnston of CoBank will join us. Stay here for more AOA in just a second. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. There are a ton of social networking websites, but one stands apart for a very special reason. This one saves lives. It's MatchingDonors.com. MatchingDonors.com links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. In the U.S., 22 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant, most of them for kidneys. If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, visit MatchingDonors.com, home of the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. MatchingDonors.com. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder, being themselves is second nature. Summer Camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer Camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. 
Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us here on AOA. Hopefully a lot of you are listening to us over the air, tuning to our trusted friends on AM and FM radio. But some of you might be tuning in via the podcast. And if you are, you are well aware of how important rural broadband is here across the Internet, or excuse me, across the country. This past week, I saw a very interesting headline. and I thought it was worth digging into. USDA has announced they are rolling out $714 million in grants and loans to help promote rural broadband. And I thought, you know, it's been a while since we dug into the state of rural broadband. So joining us today is Jeff Johnston. He's the lead communications economist with CoBank, covers the issues covering a rural broadband, and he joins us here today. Jeff, thanks for making the time to talk with us. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's jump in to this $714 million in announcements. Jeff, where is the USDA getting this money from? So this money is appropriated from Congress. Um, so that's that's where the money's coming from. And as you mentioned, it's in the form of of grants and loans. So a little over half of the 714 million is going to be coming in the form of grants. And then of course the rest will be in the form of of loans. So it's great. It's an exciting program. It's a part of the USDA's reconnect program that's been in place for for a number of years now. And this latest sort of tranche of money, if you will. Um, is expected to address over 83,000 unserved or underserved folks living in rural America. So a nice a nice step in the right direction. That is a step in the right direction. But my goodness, Jeff, there's 350 some million Americans and it takes 700 million to get 83,000 of them broadband. How do the economics work on this? Well, it's tough, right? I mean, in in sparsely populated towns in rural America, uh, the economics of running a broadband business day to day in and of themselves, sort of as a standalone basis, simply don't work. I mean, it, to your point, it's it's very expensive to string fiber along utility poles and to connect the unserved and sparsely populated towns. So that's why we need the federal government to step in to not only help pay for the capital required to build the network, but there also needs to be mechanisms in place to help ongoing operating expense support as well. Because just once it's built, if you don't have ongoing support, you know, that's not going to cash flow that network and you're going to run into issues down the road. So, yes, it is very expensive. But the nice thing is there's bipartisan support to make sure that those living in rural America that are not connected get connected. And Jeff, I think it's worth noting that the feds have gotten active. I think back to the beginning uh, parts of the coronavirus pandemic, we had the uh, the Investment and Jobs Act. I understand that rolled a ton of money into infrastructure. Did that change rural broadband financing? Mike, that was an unprecedented amount of money that has been allocated uh, to rural broadband from Congress. As a matter of fact, there was uh, f- there's forty two point five billion dollars 
as a part of the Investment Jobs Act, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, that is specifically for building networks in unserved and underserved parts of rural America. We have never, ever seen anything close to that out of the federal government in terms of support for rural broadband. So very exciting time. Uh, we're in the very early innings, if you will, to use a baseball analogy as to when this money gets rolled out. But um, it should have a profound impact for those living in rural America. Well, let's follow along on this baseball analogy a little bit, Jeff. We're in the first couple of innings. We've got this tranche of tranche of money, several of them coming from the federal government. But as you mentioned, it takes time to get the boots on the ground and the, the wires on the poles and all of that. What does the rollout for this amount of federal dollars look like? Are, are you expecting it to take five years or more for all of this money to have a home in new projects? Yeah, it's, it's going to take time, Mike. Um, uh, we are... So, so the government's gone about this in a different fashion, and I think that it's actually a good thing the way they've, they're rolling out this BEAD program. So in programs past, in FCC-managed uh, programs in the past, all of the money was doled out to operators through various USF programs in the FCC at the federal level. Okay, So the federal FCC, the Federal uh, Communications Commission, was responsible for allocating those dollars. This is a little bit different this time. The, 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 the federal agency controlling this particular BEAD program is through the NTIA, but the NTIA is working very closely with the states. And they're going to be allocating money to the states, which they're in the process of doing. And then from there, the states will have to have their own broadband grant and loan processes put in place to allocate to operators in their communities. Now, that may sound a little bit more cumbersome and maybe not as streamlined as what the FCC has done in the past or the federal government has done in the past. And there's certainly some truth to that. However, I do believe that involving the states in this fashion will actually be more effective in the long run. So it may be a little bit more cumbersome up front from a process perspective, but longer term, I think it's going to be much more effective because the states have you know, they have much more intimate knowledge about where there is and isn't coverage in rural America. So I think they'll be more effective in allocating dollars to operators in those areas to ensure that we're uh, we're addressing the underserved in an effective manner. Okay, that makes sense. It's all about getting those pieces in order and making sure that the right boxes are checked. Jeff, as we get into these projects, of course, we're talking taxpayer dollars going out into the countryside. From your perspective, as somebody who looks at communication trends, are, are we investing in the most impactful things in rural America with these federal dollars so far? So the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, from a broadband perspective, <clears throat> is a, I would consider it a fiber first strategy, meaning that there's certain speed requirements that the federal government is going to require uh, operators deploy in order to, and to get some of these, to get these dollars. And, and, and the fiber first strategy, I think is a good strategy because, you know, not getting into the nuances too much, but, you know, a lot of people, think about fiber as a future-proof technology, right? So if you think about the different applications that we use over our broadband networks at home, and if we look at how that's evolved over the last 10, 20 years, a significant amount of data are going over these networks, and that is increasing exponentially year over year. So it's important that we build networks today with federal dollars that are going to be able to handle the applications of tomorrow, 
right? So if you look at like chat GPT, which a lot of people are talking about these artificial intelligence applications, these applications are going to generate a significant amount of data traffic and require a lot of computing resources. So it's important that we're building networks that can handle applications like that and many more to come that are going to demand high speed, high bandwidth networks. So that fiber first strategy that the federal government has employed, I think is a good one. Now, the reality is, however, in some instances, it just doesn't make sense to deploy fiber to a farm or to a home because the cost associated with it just really don't justify the investment, even with federal subsidies. So there will be these, what the FCC has determined, or sorry, the NTIA has determined is high cost and ultra high cost areas. And in those instances, operators will be able to deploy, you know, more cost-friendly applications, more wireless-centric type applications that, you know, they'll be fine. They'll be, they'll be good. Don't get me wrong. They're going to, you're going to be able to watch Netflix and do Zoom calls over them and all that kind of stuff. But long-term, I mean, it remains to be seen, but they're not as ideal as a fiber-first strategy. Um, so, you know, but again, these are just some of the realities that we have to deal with in these high, ultra-high cost and high-cost areas. All right. Lots to discuss. Lots to come down the pipe here in communications. Jeff, as you look out over the rest of this year, of course, we've got a farm bill negotiation happening in Washington, D.C. Is rural broadband and communications, are they a component of the farm bill negotiations or would you expect these to be other bills elsewhere? Yeah, I think there's a chance that there could be rural do rural broadband dollars in the farm bill, I think that absolutely remains to be seen at this point. So I certainly wouldn't want to sort of hang my hat on that at this point in time. But I, I think when we when we, we think about federal broadband dollars, um, we, it, it's really right now the the bead program, right? So that forty two point five billion dollars that uh, that's a part of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. I mean, that's really the meat and potatoes of what we're dealing with right now, uh, what the states are dealing with, what, uh, you know, what broadband operators are looking forward to and cooperatives. So that's really, you know, really what we're dealing with right now. There could be additional FCC programs uh, that we've seen in the past uh, be implemented, but this $42.5 billion, Mike, again, this is an unprecedented amount of money that has been put towards uh, uh, bridging the digital divide. So it, so there, there's a lot of wood to chop as it relates to that money for the foreseeable future. There certainly is. Folks, we've been talking with Jeff Johnston, the communications economist at CoBank. And Jeff, of course, you write reports throughout the year analyzing different aspects of communication. Where can our listeners go to read up on those? Uh, you can you can visit cobank.com and uh, yeah we, we publish podcasts and we publish reports kind of thought leadership reports things that we think our our partners and our members need to be aware of from a communications perspective and for that matter throughout the ag economy as well so i think it's a great resource for those who are interested it is indeed cobank.com jeff johnson thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today and folks stick around more aoa when we return Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, we've got two big stories working throughout the market trade on the day Wednesday. The first, of course, is the continued weather issues with dryness across much of the corn belt. USDA says the U.S. corn crop now 55% good to excellent, down six points on the week. And also the soybean crop rated 54% good to excellent. That is down five points on the week as of Sunday. Now, those numbers, the lowest ratings for corn since 1988 for this time of year and the lowest for soybeans since 1996 for this time of year. We also see the biggest condition drops in the eastern Corn Belt, Illinois, for instance, standing just 36% and 33% good to excellent, respectively, for corn and soybeans. Spring wheat nationwide also falling down to 51% good to excellent, down 9% from last week's rating, and we saw double-digit declines across the Dakotas for spring wheat condition. That is definitely influencing the market with corn, soybeans, wheat, all trading sharply higher up some 20 to 35 cents throughout Wednesday's session. That in turn influencing cattle and hog futures lower as feeder cattle are down sharply as we work through Wednesday's session. Now, the other story in the market trade is the EPA announcing their blending requirements for 23, 24, and 25 under the renewable fuel standard. Those numbers coming in as a disappointment to many folks throughout the biofuel and ethanol industry. As EPA said, overall biofuel volumes a little bit higher in 23, but lower in 24, 25 than initially proposed earlier in the year. We also saw a 250 million gallon reduction in total corn-based ethanol volumes for 2024 and 2025 soybean oil down sharply as a result of the news that's a look at the markets here you're listening to aoa for the american ag network i'm jesse allen take a look under your bed find stuff under there what about jobs no now try your basement there's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore a perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months and even more stuff but still no jobs well you really have both See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA. 
Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we're turning that spotlight back to Washington, D.C. We are seeing some important wheels starting to turn in Congress, notably the funding of government and how much each executive agency is going to get. Recently had a bill come through the House Appropriations Committee, Ag Funding Bill. Joining us now to break it down is Tanner Beamer. He serves as the Senior Director for Government Affairs at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And Tanner, thanks for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Mike. Good to be with you. Let's jump into this appropriations bill, Tanner, from the 30,000 foot level. What is the House doing here with this bill? So every year, right? So Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution says no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law meaning that anytime the government spends money, it has to come through an appropriations bill. And every single year, Congress has to allocate funding levels for all the different federal agencies and all the individual programs within each of those federal agencies. Uh, under what we call regular order, the, which we haven't seen for quite some time, there's 12 appropriations bills that we, that we clear across the finish line every single year that are consolidated into one massive, what we call omnibus spending package. Uh, and the first of those 12 bills is starting to move across the finish line right now. Uh, last week of particular note to those of us in the ag community was the fiscal year 2024 agriculture FDA bill. And Tanner, it is a big bill. It's a lot of stuff to read and go through. The headline I'm seeing is that effectively we're cutting the USDA budget. The conversation is by how much, it seems. Yeah, so there are some cuts. And a lot of this goes back to when Kevin McCarthy was elected speaker. I think everybody remembers that that was a multiple ballot ordeal. Uh, and he had to make some concessions with his right flank in order to uh, clinch the necessary votes to become the speaker. One of those concessions that he made was to go back to spending levels uh, that are more closely resemble fiscal year 2022, which was uh, lower than what we enacted into law last year. And then in addition to that, during the debt ceiling negotiations with President Biden, we had to make some additional concessions uh, to really solidify that we were going to rein in spending as a way to tackle some of our debt obligations and some of those problems going forward uh, into when this current debt ceiling package expires in 2026, I believe it is. Um, but anyway, all that to say, uh, there are some rescissions in this bill. Um, in terms of total cuts to USDA, you're only looking at about a 2% cut to the funding that they see. Now, there's about an 8% rescission in allocations, but that's coupled with some rescissions of uh, funding for pandemic era programs, which is a fancy Washington way of saying that uh, there's some other programs that we're taking money away from that they don't require as much robust funding anymore. And so that money can then be repurposed for other pro other programs within USDA. So at the end of the day, uh, we're only seeing about a 2% cut. And I don't think that that's really going to impact USDA's ability to deliver for uh, America's agriculture producers. All right. So a 2% cut overall. But as you mentioned, Tanner, it sounds like there is going to be a lot of shuffling between different buckets as to how the USDA uses these funds. It, it, you mentioned Packers and stockyards rules coming out. Can you talk about how that was defunded and, and why NCBA was pushing for that? 
Yeah, so uh, we've talked about the Packers and Stockyards rules on your program before. Those are some egregious, overreaching rules from the Department of Agriculture on that would really allow them to nitpick uh, and have jurisdiction over individual transactions between cattle producers and meat packers. Uh, and that really would impact, at the end of the day, our producers' ability to capture more value for their higher quality product. Uh, we've seen USDA run this same playbook several different times over the past 15 years. And the first time they did it back in 2010, uh, Congress on a bipartisan basis expressed dis dissatisfaction with USDA's uh, overreach. And so they defunded these rules through the appropriations process. Uh, and because USDA is added again, uh, we again asked Congress to defund those rules uh, and express their dissatisfaction with USDA's course of action. And so that's what ended up happening in this House bill is they prohibited all four of the Packers and Stockyards rules that we know about at USDA from taking effect. And in fact, if they take effect before the bill gets enacted, uh, it would require those rules to be withdrawn. Uh, and this is something that's happened in the past. It's not unprecedented. And we really are appreciative of both Chairwoman Granger uh, at the full committee and Chairman Harris at the subcommittee for listening to livestock producers in rolling back these uh, harmful regulations. So Packers and Stockyards, one issue, animal traceability, disease traceability, Tanner, that's been a concern for, I think, every livestock group. Any changes in there or, uh, or improvements? Yeah, so uh, I think we've also talked before on your program about the fact that USDA is going to be making some changes to their official identification uh, rules for animals that are uh, over 18 months of age breeding stock that are traveling interstate. Um, in the past, they've allowed for paper records and paper identification. Going forward, uh, they proposed a rule that would require that those animals be electronically identified. And that's for animal disease traceability purposes. If we have some sort of a foreign animal disease outbreak, like foot and mouth disease, God forbid, you know, we would have a situation where we, time is money and our ability to recover and, re and remediate that situation is entirely dependent upon how fast we can isolate where the disease is and stop it from spreading. So that's why this electronic identification is, is so important. Um, and so one of the biggest hurdles though, for from our perspective in achieving a robust national animal disease traceability program has been, how are we going to pay for the tags that have to go in those ears of those cattle that are uh, affected by the rule? Uh, and again, we went to appropriators on Capitol Hill and requested that they uh, provide some funding to USDA to be able to purchase tags so producers don't have to shoulder that cost burden. And again, that's not unprecedented. USDA has done that on a voluntary basis going back to 2020, where they provided free tags to those that wanted them. Uh, and we uh, really were adamant that uh, USDA needed to shoulder the cost of this rule that they're imposing on cattle producers. So there's $10 million in the House version of the bill. Um, in the Senate bill for the Ag Appropriations Bill, that's going to be uh, marked up tomorrow in the Senate Appropriations Committee. We haven't seen bill text there yet, uh, so we don't know what's in there, but I would imagine that you're gonna see some, some funding levels in there as well for animal disease traceability purposes. Uh, or, or, excuse me, Tanner, I'm glad you brought up the Senate component. That's that's something we need to get into here as we're talking about the process. We've got this House Appropriations Bill, but then do we still need that Senate version to come through and then convergence before it finally gets to uh, Biden? So in terms of actual funding and actual bill tech, so when we when we put policy riders into the appropriations bill and when we allocate funds through the appropriations bills, that does require 
um, a, a bill in the House and a bill in the Senate. Uh, usually those two don't look the same. And so once both chambers pass it, they go to what's called a conference committee where they resolve any differences. And then they uh, go through the process again to pass an identical bill that they can then send to the president's desk. Um, so we are pleased that the Senate is moving forward with some of their appropriations markups. Again, we haven't seen text yet from the Senate side, uh, but I'm looking forward to diving into that as soon as that becomes publicly available. One thing that does not, however, require uh, both chambers is the accompanying report. So every appropriations bill that gets passed through the committee has a report attached to it. And that is kind of just an explanatory statement. So Congress allocates money, but then in the reports, it kind of goes into how they want each of the agencies to spend that money. And that doesn't necessarily have the full force of law. Uh, it's not binding because it's not legislation. It's just an explanatory statement, but it does allow um, for us as, as the stakeholder community to uh, lobby USDA more effectively, for example, in making sure that those funds are, are properly spent. And the House bill, uh, that accompanying report is chock full of, of some really good things for cattle producers. Um, and hopefully we'll see some similarities in the Senate report when it's revealed as well. Tanner, as you look out to the future and we expect that Senate report, are there any places where you, the cattle industry, is expecting conflict between the House and Senate proposals? You know, I think the the Packers and Stockyards rules is is one where um, I don't think there's going to be contentious disagreement, but I don't think that the Senate, uh, particularly being controlled by the Democrats, uh, whereas this is a Democratic administration pushing these rules out, I don't think they're going to have the same sense of urgency to get rid of these Packers and Stockyards rules as maybe the House did. Um, but that's really the only policy writer I think that there's some major disagreement over between the two chambers. That being said, I think all eyes are on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, you've got, um, if, if the committee markup is any indication of what the floor is going to look like, you're not going to get any Democratic support for this appropriations bill. And there's a host of tertiary reasons as to why that is. Um, but it does look like Speaker McCarthy is going to have to pass this bill with Republican only votes. And of course, you do have a small handful of far right budget hawk Republicans that are dissatisfied with this product and dissatisfied with the debt ceiling agreement under which these appropriations bills were crafted. Uh, and to them, I would say this is a very good piece of legislation. This has a lot of good things in it for your constituents. Uh, and NCBA is asking for every member of Congress to favorably vote yes on this legislation when it comes to the floor of the House of Representatives. Tanner, any impact of this legislation on the ongoing Farm Bill legislation? You know, I think uh, obviously the Farm Bill authorizes uh, spending on several major programs. There's 12 titles of the Farm Bill. Uh, and this bill will definitely not so much this year because it's fiscal year 2024, but the next appropriation cycle will definitely uh, be a lot more hand in glove with the farm bill once it gets passed. But uh, uh, in both chambers, the House and the Senate, on a bipartisan basis at the committee level, at least, there is a lot of work being done to get that farm bill uh, through subcommittees and through the committee in time to meet the September 30th deadline. September 30th will be here before we know it. Work will continue in Congress. Folks, we have been talking today with Tanner Beamer. He serves as the Senior Director for Government Affairs at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And Tanner, as always, thank you for joining us here on AOA. Thanks, Mike. Have a good one. Stay with us, ladies and gentlemen. Earlier today, we had the EPA release their three-year proposal for renewable volume obligations, the biofuel blending requirements. Paul Winfors will join us from the Clean Fuels Alliance America's perspective here when AOA returns.
Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track, no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. This is Jesse Allen, Farmer Ranch Director for the American Ag Network. Listeners know they can depend on their favorite radio station for the latest news, weather, markets, community events, and more. In fact, AM radio is the backbone of America with 80 million people tuning in each month to listen. And in an emergency, radio is there to help keep you safe in dangerous situations. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com and tell us why, and you will have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 B.C. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkey. 
Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. Put a frog in a pot of boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in a pot of cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As a metaphor for us and all that we go through as veterans, it's a story that rings true. We learn to endure the heat in silence. We apply what we learn to life, the bills, the job, the family, things we're expected to handle with ease. When life heats up around us, we just try to stay afloat. We let the water boil. Reaching out isn't easy, but you've never been interested in easy. You join because you are not afraid of hard work. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait until the water boils. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we're hoping to be checking in with Paul Winters from the Clean Fuels Alliance of America. We did get the release this morning of the EPA's final RFS, Renewable Fuel Standard volume obligations how much biofuels of different types are required to be blended into the nation's fuel supply we got the update for the next three years from the epa and while our friends largely in the corn ethanol industry are pleased so to speak at least with the initial results friends in our renewable biodiesel industry much less so joining us now is paul winters of clean fuel alliance america paul thanks for taking the time to talk with us today we really appreciate you uh, having me on Let's talk a little bit about this release. How did the EPA miss the mark, in your opinion, from a renewable and biomass-based biodiesel perspective? Well, you know, their their proposal was so out of touch, out of step with the growth in the industry that was already occurring that it, it was a little difficult to imagine they'd ever get back to a, a, a correct uh, evaluation of, of the growth. Uh, you know, already this year, in the first five months, production has grown by more than 400 million gallons compared to last year. And EPA stuck with its estimate of 60 million gallons for the entire year. That is an incredible statistic there, Paul. I just want to make sure I'm understanding it correctly. In the first five months of this year, the renewable biodiesel industry has created 400 million gallons of the product, but the EPA only wants to see 60 million blended into the fuel supply? That's correct. That's um, a comparison of, of production in the first five months of 2022 versus the first five months of 2023. Wow. I mean, what does this do for the industry? It has been a period of expansion. It has been a period of announcements, Paul. News like this, how does this impact that growth? Well, we've already seen it uh, begin to affect investments and, and 
stock values and the value of of um, feed stocks. So I, I think we're going to see a shock to the marketplace and um, it's going to affect decisions over the next few years. It certainly is, Paul. And I think it's worth noting this is the final RVO. Are there any options for the CFAA associates and stakeholders to appeal this decision or is it now in stone for the next three years? There are options, but they're, they're very time consuming. Um, we are certainly going to have to live with what EPA has done for the next year or so. Um, there are opportunities for administrative or legal uh, um, requests to, to make changes. And it's a little difficult to, um, to get EPA to assess its own data and understand that the growth is occurring. So uh, we hope to see the, the growth continue on an upward trend. We hope to see that um, you know industry investments begin to pay off. The 2026 rule will need to be finalized by November next year. So, uh, so th there's another opportunity in that for EPA to, to to actually get this program back on track and, and follow through on the promise of an upward traje traje trajectory that they that they uh, instituted last year. Okay, so it sounds like there is still potential down the line, either through legal means or through perhaps the next uh, the next update to get this thing fixed. In the meantime, Paul, we do have an industry that is continuing to grow. There is a lot of enthusiasm for the lower emission biodiesel options out there. If we've got listeners who want to continue to support this industry, where would you recommend they go to keep up to speed of uh, what all's going on? They can always visit cleanfuels.org for the latest updates, and um, we hope that, that uh, your listeners will make their their opinions known to EPA as, as uh, EPA continues to assess the growth of the industry. Absolutely, folks. Stay active, stay engaged, talk to your legislators, talk to those regulators if you get the chance to get in front of them. If these liquid fuels help you on your farm, either by providing a better return for those oil seeds that you're marketing or by potentially providing a better option in fuel supply for you, be sure to let them know. We've been talking with Paul Winters, the Director of Public Affairs at the Clean Fuel Alliance America today. And Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on AOA. Thank you, Mike. Before we go for the day, folks, I do have just one piece of news that we wanted to offer an update on. This is coming out of the USDA announced earlier this week. It's a uh, it's a unique approach to a bill pro uh, proposed by five senators that would look to encourage regional diversity around the U.S. This is a program the USDA would be putting $75 million a year aside for the development of regionally adapted plant and livestock uh, seeds and and breeds. This money would be going to public universities to allow them to continue on-farm research. A lot of this, of course, would be going to our uh, our Morel Grant uh, universities. And New Mexico's Senator Martin Heinrich was uh, one of the proponents of this, and he said, quote, farmers and ranchers are on the front lines of the climate crisis. We need to grow our investments in the research and development of more climate-adaptive and disease-resistant plant varieties and animal breeds to make our food systems more sustainable. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out, certainly looking to spotlight some of the research being done at these universities here across the country. And earlier in the program, we were talking markets there with Jacob Burks of agmarket.net. He mentioned the wheat market rally. 
Friday, Mike Zuzolo talked about the dryness that has developed across Europe and how that is enticing some of these managed money traders to take a look at the wheat market and think maybe the supply isn't as great as we had once anticipated. We got some more follow-on information to that earlier today. It was reported by the Indian Ag Department that that country's wheat crop is expected to be 10% lower than earlier government exports. Now, the government had pegged the 2023 crop at 112 million metric tons, but uh, the trade association there in India now expects it to be between 101 and 103 million metric tons. They believe production was pushed down by lower prices, leading to lower plantings. And of course, input prices have skyrocketed, leaving farmers similar to farmers across America looking to cut costs and perhaps by weakening some of their input programs. Folks, tune in to AOA tomorrow. We'll dig into more issues that are impacting the world of agriculture. Until then, stay safe and have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Get on board. The water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. board. Kids across America are going to school hungry. Millions of kids every day. But one simple thing can help change all of this for a hungry child in America. Good, healthy food and the energy it brings. With help from caring people across America, No Kid Hungry is providing healthy meals and hope to hungry kids so they can build better futures. To learn more about ending child hunger in America, go to helpnokidhungry.org today. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, we, we We are are the Foundation foundation Fighting fighting Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.